We are in a series that we began last week uh, called Prophets, and it's on the Old Testament prophets of Elijah and Elisha. We studied the kings earlier in the year. Here we see that there's kind of this parallel track, uh, while the kings are leading the people, that the prophets provide kind of God's voice and God's message to the people, no matter how crazy things get with the kings, the prophets are there. And we've said that one of the reasons that we want to to do even a series like this is we believe that that there are Elijahs to be called up from among us. Because what we see is the prophets, even though there will be times where they go alone or they stand alone or ignored or, or, or even worse... We believe that God calls his church and Christians in any generation, no matter how bad things get, to be a voice that speaks uh, for God and on behalf of God. And so we are really excited to be in this series um, called The Prophets. Um, But as we get going today, I don't know if you've noticed recently um, how often people use abbreviations. I'm sure you've seen this, um, but it just seems like people are so busy these days, you can't even write out a full sentence. You just have to, you know, uh, text it real quick. If you little letters and it means something, um, it's almost like become part of our vocabulary. So just to prove the point here, I'm going to show you a little abbreviation, some common, easy stuff, and you tell me what it means. So when someone sends you LOL, what does that mean? Laugh out loud. Hey, you guys are good at this. All right. How about when someone sends you IDK? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. How about this one? I. How about this? ILY? One of my favorites. I love you. I love you too. Thank you. Hearty face. Um, All right. How about this one? TTYL. Talk to you later. Good. So, um, all right. So now most people get this. Sometimes that older generation doesn't quite get this. And so maybe you would get a text from your mom that would go something like this. So mom would text and she says, hey, what does IDKLY and TTYL mean? And you text back, I don't know. Love you. Talk to you later. Mom gets a little confused and she says, okay, I'll just ask your sister on that. So you type back LOL with the little crying face kind of deal there. But hey, the reason I bring up abbreviations is there's one I want to show you because it's really important for our message today. And I wonder how many of you are familiar with this little expression, DTR. Who knows what DTR means? Define the relationship. We need to have a DTR uh, moment. A DTR uh, moment is enough to cause a young man to break into like a, a sweat. Because DTR is when you have to decide and discuss the level of commitment and which direction that relationship is going. So the truth of it is any really good, strong, long-term relationship is going to have some DTR moments along the way. So for instance, Janie and I are married 31 years. We just celebrated our anniversary uh, not too long ago. That's all right. You could have clapped for her for sure. She is a hero. Um, but I still remember some of those DTR moments along the way. In fact, I was thinking of one and we'd been dating like over a year at this point. I really thought, you know, we were moving towards getting engaged or something like that. And we were cruising along and we came along where we had to have a DTR moment. And can you imagine Jenny decided after that, that she was going to break up with me. I know. Can you even imagine that? Yes, I I couldn't imagine. So anyways, I was just devastated um, by this. I don't know if she just got some cold feet or whatever, but she decided uh, we're going to break up. And I was just crushed by this. And so um, right away, I'm, you know, 
trying to convince her why to come back. I'm calling her all the time, you know, every day, trying to have this conversation, trying to know we need to stay together. Um, eventually, good news, she came to her senses. Um, <laughs> Or just got tired of me calling all the time, and I just maybe wore her down. Um, we came back together, I think stronger um, than ever. And not long after that, I began looking at um, engagement rings because I thought I need to seal the deal at this point. I am not going to take any more risks um, with this DTR stuff. Um, but that was a moment when we had to define the relationship. Were we in or were we out? Are we going forward with this, and is the next step... Till death do us part, are we in, are we out? Um, or did she have better options that she wanted to consider? Um, I don't know. But I share all that with you today because in this study of the Old Testament prophets of Elijah and Elisha, today we come to one of the classic DTR moments in all of the Bible. First Kings chapter 18 that we're going to be studying is a DTR, define the relationship moment for all of God's people and especially with Elijah. So uh, you see one thing that we need to know about God. And when you read the, the Bible and kind of see God um, uh, revealed to us is that God wants all of us. God wants all of us. The Bible actually describes God as a jealous God which is kind of weird for us because we think of jealousy as a very human or maybe petty or insecure kind of thing. But God is not human in his jealousy. God, as a divine creator, knows that we work best when we're given fully devoted to him. And so he has a jealousy for us to be fully devoted to him. That's why of, of all the commandments, the first commandment, commandment number one of the Ten Commandments is this. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the, the first one. And then the second commandment, it's kind of a corollary of that. And it says this, you shall not make for yourself any, uh, make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. So he says, don't make any idols, anything like after the created order and worship those things. And then when Jesus is asked about what is the greatest commandment, he famously says, the greatest commandment is this, you love the Lord your God. What? With all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And so God wants us to be fully devoted to him. So it makes sense if we have a God who wants all of us and this God has an enemy as he does in the devil, that the part of the devil's like number one strategy would be to try to get people to take other things that are not God. And to focus our devotion and our desires and our interest on those things until we put them in the place that belongs rightfully to God. We take something that is not God, but we put it in God's place. The Bible calls that the sin of idolatry, the sin of idolatry. And in our passage today from first Kings chapter 18, you need to know that the nation of Israel is neck deep in idolatry. They're neck deep in uh, following after these idols. So uh, you may remember uh, from last week, Elijah is called by God to go stand up and, as we said, be this prophetic voice specifically to a guy by the name of King Ahab. And Ahab is married to Jezebel. And so uh, Elijah has to go. And these guys who kind of rejected and turned the people away from God, Ahab has to go and to speak God's message to them. 
Now, the reality is, is Ahab is the eighth evil king in a row. So for eight generations, Israel has had an evil king. So over a hundred years now, they have been ignoring those commandments to put God first and to not have any other idols. But still, Elijah has to go and speak against that. Now, in Israel at that time, kind of the preferred idols based on the, the other nations kind of right around them um, were the worship of Asherah and Baal. So Asherah was a fertility goddess and Baal, there wasn't just one Baal like we tend to think about that. Baal is actually more like a title than it is a name. And so there were many different Baals. So there was a Baal of the storms and a Baal of the weather. There was a Baal of war. There was a Baal of prosperity and a Baal of good health and and, and all those kinds of uh, different Baals. And the belief was if you worship these idols, whichever one it was, if you worshiped it just right and you did all the things just right, then this idol would give you what you want. It would offer you that protection or that safety or whatever it was. And these idols um, in Elijah's day, the Bible doesn't explain exactly about this, but they certainly had some sort of either demonic power or some sort of dark spiritual power because people kept going to them time and time again, right? So they you know, people kept going to them. Now, I think about that, and I think these people are crazy, right? Who would worship an idol like that? It just doesn't make sense to our modern mind that these ancient backward people would actually take a, a, a piece of stone or a piece of wood, and they would carve something out of it, and then they would worship it. It just doesn't make sense that they would worship a god that they made with their own hands. It seems crazy to me. However, the truth is, it's actually pretty arrogant for us as modern people to think that only ancient, unscientific, unenlightened people worship idols, right? Because everyone worships something. Even the atheist worship something, whether they want you to know that or not, whether they will admit it or not. Um, and we may not have little statues that we make sacrifices to, but we all have these different places that we turn to for the things that God is meant to provide. Fulfillment, security, identity, provision. You see, what an idol does is it promises what God can only truly provide. Right. And so we we think, you know, I need these things from God because God's put eternity in our heart. He's put a, a longing in us for something beyond just ourselves. So we're built to long for something more. And an idol promises that it can give us that really what uh, is only meant for God to provide. And so, for instance, people make uh, an idol out of money or material possessions. Right. Because we think that that money is going to provide me security and happiness and peace. And then your retirement fund goes down 30% in a month and suddenly where's all your security and where's all your peace? Or you put your, your, your trust in, in, in money and then your child gets sick or your marriage goes bad and suddenly all the money in the world doesn't provide what you need. People make life all about sex or relationships because they think somehow those will fill this empty kind of God-shaped hole in my life. In fact, there's all kinds of bad and good things, a lot of good things that people can make um, idols. So things even like fitness or recreation, career can become an idol, education, uh, your favorite sports team, I understand, could be an idol. I don't understand that, but I've heard that. Um, family. You know, even something as good as an important 
his family can become an idol when we put it in the place that belongs solely to God first in our life. Believe it or not, and I can speak to this from experience, you can even make church an idol. There have been times in my life where it's been more about, you know, serving the church and growing the church and somehow being this, you know, great pastor, even more than loving and following God and being a child of God. And so anything that we place in that uh, spot that belongs to God is an idol. So I share all that with you. Before we even jump into this morning's story, I need to say this. Let's not make this story that we're about to read about other people. Let's not make this story about other people from another time and from another place. Because the story that we're just about to read is our story. It's a story of each and every one of us. In fact, John Calvin says that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Right? We just create these things. And so we need to ask the question, who and what am I serving and following in my life? So if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to 1 Kings 18, one of the greatest stories in all of the Bible. Um, and at this time, we're going to see that Israel is sliding down this slippery slope of idolatry. And God says, okay, it is time for a DTR moment. We need to define this relationship. Are you in or are you out? Let's see where this whole thing is going. So as we jump into the text, um, as I said, it's an amazing story. It's really the high point of of Elijah's life. Everything before this is leading up to this moment. Everything after this is him coming out of this moment. But remember, Elijah's been on the run for about three years now because he first has to go to Ahab and Jezebel and bring this judgment. And his judgment is that, that until he says so and God says so, there's going to be no rain in the land. And so there's this drought that takes over the land and for three years. And so Ahab has to, to run away from Jezebel and Ahab who are trying to, uh, to catch him. But during those three years, uh, God is really preparing Elijah for this very moment. So let's pick up the story. First uh, Kings uh, 18, we're going to start in verse 16, where it says this. So Ahab, the bad guy, went to meet Elijah, the good guy. And when he saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? So that little word that Ahab throws at Elijah, you troubler of Israel, means someone who causes a disturbance or a, a calamity. It's related to the Hebrew word for the word plague. Uh, like when Moses brought plagues on Egypt, he brought trouble or those kind of things on Egypt. So Ahab says, Elijah, you have brought this plague of a drought on us. You are a troubler for all of Israel. But if you go to verse 18, Elijah speaks up and he says, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. And so Elijah hits him with this, hey, I'm not the troubler, you're the troubler. It's like when a kid says, I know you are, but what am I kind of argument. Um, and Ahab or Elijah says, Ahab. Everybody knows the reason that we're in this drought. I am not the troubler of Egypt or Israel. We are in this trouble because you and your family, even though God has warned you and invited you and called you back again, time and time again, to leave behind those idols and return to him, you have rejected that. And so because as the leader of the people, you've done this, there is a great a struggle for the people and your nation is suffering. So Elijah says in so many words, here's what we're going to do about it. We are going to settle this thing once and for all. We are going to have this out one final time. 
So now we're to verse 19, and at least kind of in my head as I'm reading this, this is when the music starts to change a little bit, and the drums start to get a little bit louder, because this is what Elijah says. He says, now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel, and bring the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table, Which, by the way, how big was Jezebel's table? I mean, seriously. Uh, Verse 20, it says, So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. So we're going to have a prophet showdown there at the top of Mount Carmel. Now, let me just tell you a little something about Mount Carmel, because it's very, not only, I think, interesting, but very significant for this little battle that is going to take place. So Mount Carmel, and we have a picture of it, is right along um, the Mediterranean Sea. The top of Mount Carmel is about 1,800 feet above sea level. And so if you go to the top of Mount Carmel, and especially if you're looking towards the east, you would see down to the south of you, you would see into Israel, and to the north of you, you would see Phoenicia, or Sidon, the land of Sidon. little extra credit bonus. Who remembers from last week who is from Sidon? Jezebel. Jezebel's home country, home area is uh, Sidon. And so there they are on the top of this mountain where they're going to have this define the relationship moment. And symbolically, they're looking on one side to the land of Yahweh and Elijah, and they're looking to the other side to the land of Baal and Asherah and the land of Jezebel. And that's on that mountain between those two realities, those two stark contrasts. That's where the battle for the heart and the soul of the people is going to take place. And they are going to have to choose which one are you going to follow? Which path are you going to take? And Elijah, I think, totally gets the significance of this. Because now we're up to verse uh, 22, I'm sorry, verse 21, and we see this. So Elijah went before the people, and this is what he said. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. So if you want to write down kind of the heart of Elijah's message, this is what you want to put in your notes. The heart of Elijah's message is it's time to quit wavering. It's time to quit wavering. He says, how long are you going to keep living with one foot in and one foot out? How long are you going to live partly devoted to God, but also partly devoted to your idols? How long are you going to be a follower of Jesus on Sunday morning and maybe on Wednesday night, but live the rest of your life just like everybody else? And so Elijah's message is it's time to quit wavering. So if you look at your text there, it says, if the Lord is God, what are we supposed to do? It says, Follow him. So if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then what are you supposed to do? Follow him. So he's like, you got to make up your mind here. Jesus actually says a very similar kind of thing in Matthew chapter 6 when he says that no one can serve two masters. You will either hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot, Jesus says, serve both God and money. Right? So he says you can't follow the idols And follow God as well. So if Elijah were here today, he would maybe say it something like this. He's like, friends, hey, if money is going to be your God, if it's going to be where you turn for security and identity, then you might as well go all in on chasing after money, right? Do whatever it takes. Cheat if you have to. 
Go into massive debt if you have to. Work yourself to the bone if you have to. But if that's going to be where you get your security and your identity, then go all in on that. If it's going to be fitness and appearance that's going to be the number one thing that you think about and devote your time and energy to in your life, then go for it, right? Three hours a day in the gym, four hours a day. You know, you say, I don't have time to read my Bible or to, to serve, but, but you know, that's what I'm going to do. Or if you think, hey, this body, this is, you know, I'm going to make this um, kind of my idol, then go all in on it. Do whatever it takes. Tan it. Pump it. Tat it, puff it, tuck it, lift it, curl it, color it, whatever, go all in. If it's your career, if it's comfort, if it's popularity, if it's food, if it's sex, if it's family, if those things are going to be number one in what you devote your time and energy and, and, and attention to, then go all in on it. But Elijah might say, if Jesus Christ is Lord, like he says that he is, then go all in on that. If Jesus is really who he says he is, then he asks us to go all in on him as Lord. And what do we see time and time again when people got around Jesus and they began to comprehend who he really was? What did they do with their life? They didn't partially follow him. They left everything and followed him. They fell at his feet and they worshiped him. The other people would leave and they'd said, where can we go, Jesus? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. And so Elijah throws this down. It's time to quit wavering. And the people said nothing, which is not a very good start. But let's keep going with the story. Now we're to verse 22 and it says this. So then Elijah said to them, am I, I am, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Just me. But Baal has 450 prophets. So here's what I think we should do. Let's get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one of the bowls for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I then will take the other bowl. I'll put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And then all the people said, what you say is good. And so Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of the God, uh, of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and they prepared it. So Elijah says, here's the deal. This is the plan that we're going to go with to see whose God is really God. There's 450 of you against, well, just me. I'm by myself. So let's each get a sacrifice, get it all ready. And whoever's God answers by fire, he is God, right? So that's going to be the one. And so Elijah is, I guess, just being polite or whatever. And he says, you go first. You pick the bull first and you go first and let's just see what happens. And all of the people watching are probably thinking, Elijah, you fool. Don't you know that Baal is the God of fire? And don't you know that Baal is the God of lightning? Elijah, you troubler of Israel. What have you got us into? And the plot thickens. I'm at to verse 26 and it says this. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And so they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. 
right? And so this whole thing goes on all morning long. There's a lot of shouting. There's a lot of dancing, but nothing happens. So Elijah does something that you hardly ever see in the Bible. Um, In fact, as I was thinking about it, Elijah does something that's not allowed at, at upward basketball because Elijah is about to make fun of the other team. And that's just not what we're supposed to do. But Elijah is about to engage in some holy smack talk. And it's classic what he says here. I love this stuff. At least in my uh, mind, I see Elijah. They're all dancing. They're shouting around the altar. And Elijah's just sitting back in his lawn chair. And he's saying, you know, hey, great job with all the shouting. Great job with all the dancing. But maybe do it a little more because I don't know, maybe your God's sleeping or taking a little nap. Maybe he's on vacation. You know, I heard Disneyland's great. Oh, maybe he's at the beach. Or, and you know, I, I, I like the NIV as a translation, but in this instance, they totally miss it. Because when Elijah says, maybe your God is busy, the actual Hebrew phrase there is, maybe your God is in the bathroom. Or maybe your God is relieving your, himself. And so Elijah, I think he's just over there cracking himself up with this whole thing. And um, I think it's pretty funny. It's still not allowed at upward basketball to do that kind of thing. Um, but that's what Elijah does. In verse 28, it says, And so they were upset about this, and they shouted louder, and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed. They had been going from morning to midday. And they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered No one paid attention. And if I could just pause here and make a couple observations about worshiping idols or worshiping false gods. And I think these originally came from Tim Keller. And the first one is this. Uh, False gods require a lot of strenuous dancing to please them. Right? I mean, they're just like dancing and dancing and dancing. Right? And not the good kind of dancing. So, but if you think about it, a god like Allah, the God of, of, of Islam, says, uh, are you dancing hard enough? Are you keeping all the laws? Are you keeping all the pillars? Uh, does your good outweigh your bad? As you look at your life, do you have more good deeds than bad deeds? And by the way, you never know if, if you're going to have enough when you actually die. So you better keep dancing and you better dance harder and you better dance faster. Because if you get to the end and it's not all balanced out, I will crush you. And the same is true with secular gods as well, right? If if, if it's a god like money or popularity or beauty, they say, uh, do you have enough yet? Or do you look a certain way yet? Or or, uh, do you, you know, are you fitting in with the right crowd yet? And if not, what are you supposed to do? Dance harder. Dance more. Dance until you get the right job. Dance until you get into the right school. Dance until you live into the right neighborhood, whatever it is. And, And you can dance with all your might and you can do the best that you can But eventually, if you dance so much, what happens? You start to get a little bit tired and maybe you start to fall back and it will crush you. False gods require a lot of strenuous dancing to please them. Second observation is this. False gods will push you toward destruction. What comes after the dancing? After they dance and it doesn't work, what do they do? It comes the slashing and the cutting of themselves. So figuratively, we slash our bodies to look a certain way. Or we slash our families by working ourselves to the bone because we think that somehow by doing all these things, we're going to provide a better life for our kids. We slash our kids by putting this pressure on them and making them do all these things to live up to a certain standard. We slash our souls 
when we compromise our integrity to pursue pride or, or pleasure as our number one idol. Tim Keller says this, how do you know where the idols are in your life? Look for the dancing and look for the slashing. Those places where you feel like you're chasing, 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 but can never quite get there. Maybe that's because you're chasing after something that God never intended you to chase after. He intended you to chase after himself, not after some idol. So now it's Elijah's turn. They've done everything they can. Nothing seems to happen. So now it's Elijah's turn. Um, and to show that this, uh, he decides that he's going to show that this is not just some little simple party trick or sleight of hand that he's going to do. And so he says, before we do, uh, I call on my God to do the sacrifice. Let's take some water and let's pour some water on my sacrifice. Now, I'm no like science expert, but if you're trying to get something to light on fire, is pouring water on it a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing, right, if you want it to light on fire. And so Elijah says, well, pour water on it. And don't just do it once. Don't just do it twice. Pour water on it three times. The Bible says that it's actually, there's water's just like overflowing. And it kind of fills up the little troughs all around it. And so now I'm at verse 36, and it says this. But at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward. And notice what he didn't do. He didn't dance. He didn't shout. He didn't slash himself. He simply prayed. And this is what he prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all of these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back to them again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, but not just the sacrifice. It burned up the wood and the stones and the soil, and it licked up the water in the trench. There's places where the Bible describes our God as a consuming fire, and that's exactly what takes place here. And when all of the people saw this, what did they do? They fell prostrate and they cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Isn't that awesome? It's one of the best scenes in the whole Bible. And the people shouted when they saw what God did. They said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. By the way, does anybody remember from last week how you say that phrase in Hebrew? Eli-jah. God is the Lord. The Lord is God. Eli-jah. 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 They're chanting Elijah's name. But not because of how great Elijah is, but because of how great Elijah's God is. And the people fall down and they begin to say, this is what we want to do to define our relationship. And so just to finish this story, there's one more kind of hard verse that quite honestly, a lot of preachers will kind of tend to skip over. It's tempting to do it. But verse 40 kind of wraps up this story by saying this. So then Elijah commanded them. Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. Well, that is an amazing story. And as I said, one of the temptations with a story like that is it's so easy to say, hey, that's a fascinating story for an old-fashioned people in a day gone by. But the reality is, as I said, this is our story as well. And so where do we find ourselves in this story? And so as we conclude, I want to just give you four kind of observations from this story that I think are super significant for us. So the first one is this. Whereas false gods, false gods are going to require strenuous effort. The true God is known by grace through faith. Why do I say that? 
What do we see the prophets of Baal do? We already talked about it. They danced and they shouted and they did everything they could to get God's attention. But nothing worked. All of that strenuous effort to get God's attention. And it didn't work. What does Elijah do? He goes and he doesn't dance and he doesn't shout, but he simply prays. Uh, He simply prays in faith. You see, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, which is all about Elijah's God, is different from every other religion. Every other religion, every other idol will say this. you got to work harder. you got to do more. you got to do all these things. And then maybe the deity will accept you. The gospel of Jesus Christ goes like this. Jesus comes and he says, I love you. And because of the grace of my father, I accept you. Come to me. And then you begin to obey and to follow after him. It's completely different. False gods are always going to require strenuous effort, but the true God is known by grace through faith. Second one, kind of like that. Whereas false gods mutilate you, kind of a hard word, but mutilate you, the true God mutilated himself for you. So what did they do? They cut themselves until they bled to try to get Baal's attention. Think about Jesus Christ. He was cut for us until he bled. In fact, you you may not even remember, there's a funny little story in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9, and Jesus and his disciples had been to Samaria. And so it's a you know place kind of outside of, of, of Israel, and, and they go to Samaria, and the people don't accept them there. They just kind of reject them. They don't say why. It just says the people didn't accept them. And so as they're leaving Samaria, James and John make this comment. Almost every scholar will tell you that James and John are referring back to this story of Elijah. Because you remember what James and John say? They say, hey, Jesus, shall we call down fire on these people? Right? They didn't accept us, so shall we call down fire on them? And Jesus just says he rebukes them, and he kind of goes on. But that's because people get this so misunderstood, and we do as well. You see, in this story of Elijah, Jesus is not Elijah calling down fire. You know who Jesus is in the story? Jesus is the sacrifice on the altar, receiving the fire of God's judgment on our behalf. You see, other things will say, cut yourself, bleed. Jesus says, I love you so much that I gave my life for you. I bled on your behalf so that you can live as I created you to be in a relationship with God, fellowship with God, a relationship where you can be at peace with yourself, a relationship where you can be at peace with, with one another. It's the gospel relationship. When we make Jesus Lord, we begin to experience peace in all those different places. Third observation is this. Where as false gods are ultimately powerless, the true God answers with a miracle. You know, don't you think it would just be great? I think we could all agree that it would be really helpful if God would do a few more, like, send fire down from heaven miracles, right? It would really help. You know, you're having a discussion with your coworker, and you're like, all right, let's just take it outside. You know, you build a little thing over here, and you build a little thing, and God, boom, sends down fire. Wouldn't that, that'd be way more helpful, wouldn't it? But God doesn't seem to do that. So you think, well, could there just be, you know, just some sort of miracle? Maybe, could you, could you cure my friend's cancer? Could you end this drought that we're having here? God, could you maybe do something that would just let us know that you are a lone God? Could you just like help the Raiders win the Super Bowl? I don't know, just something crazy. But what I want you to remember is the greatest miracle of them all is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
remember when Elijah prepares the, prepares the sacrifice. He pours all the water on it. He pours everything until God sends down the fire and burns it all up. It's almost as if God is showing off, saying, look how powerful I am. When Jesus gave his life, when Jesus, uh, when Jesus gave his life, uh, it was not an easy death. First, he was beaten. He was put on a cross. They nailed his hands and his feet. They put a sword in his side. And then he was buried. But he wasn't just buried a little bit. He was buried in this tomb. And they rolled a huge stone over it. And they sealed the tomb with the stone. And, and then in front of that, there was an, uh, of the entrance, there was a Roman garrison of, of soldiers standing guard. But Romans chapter 1 says this, that when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he rose in power. And so he rolled the stone away. And the soldiers were so scared that they either passed out or, or ran away. And then Jesus says he was risen. He walked through walls and he appeared in locked rooms and he ate with his disciples. And he appeared to more than 500 at one time. And then with everybody watching, he ascended uh, into heaven. The point is this. Jesus didn't just defeat death a little bit. He destroyed it. He demolished it. It's almost as if God is showing off where other gods are ultimately powerful or powerless. Our God answers in power. And the greatest one of all is the resurrection of Jesus. And as you think about those three things that I said, as you think about those things, you know what it should do? It should cause us to have a DTR moment. It calls us to define the relationship because if those things are true about Jesus Christ, then he is Lord And you need to decide if Jesus is who he says he is, am I following him like that? If he's worthy of my full devotion, am I giving it to him? It's time to define the relationship. And then the fourth observation is this, because they go together. The fourth observation is this, is putting God first is often going to require you to get rid of the things that are pulling you away from him, pulling you away from God. You know, as I said, one of the hardest parts of that story, at least for me, is the very last verse. Because verse 40, it says, after the great miracle, they round up all the prophets of Baal and they're put to death. And for me, I always find that to be difficult because that picture of all those prophets being put to death, it it doesn't always seem to match up with the New Testament teaching on love for your enemies or, you know, turning the other cheek or, or Jesus rebukes Peter in the garden when he pulls his sword and he says, put the sword away. So in some ways, that scene doesn't seem to match up. But you know what that scene does match up with? Is the Bible's consistent teaching on how seriously God takes sin. You see, it's easy for us and it's tempting for us to say, oh, my sin is no big deal. And we become kind of inoculized to it and we see so much and we think, oh, you know, I'm better than most people. And we think, you know, these are just my little idols. God doesn't really care about those things. No, this teaching teaches us if there are things that are pulling us away from God, we need to get rid of them. If there are things that are keeping me from putting God in the number one place in my life, I need to get rid of those other things. I read an analogy that was kind of helpful to me, and the author said this. It said, if if it was determined that you had cancer, and the doctor said, here's what we need to do. We're going to operate on you right away, and they put you under, they take you in, and they do the surgery, and then you wake up. The first question you're going to ask the doctor, what's the first question going to be? Did they get it all? Did they get it all? Because I wanted to make sure that every single cell is, I don't want to leave anything in there. And that's the way it can be with sin. We leave those things in there and they're allowed to grow. And so I don't need to have some big emotional moment, but 
I need to say it's time for you to define your relationship. If he really is who he says he is, are you in? Are you out? He never gives us the option of a little bit in and a little bit out. He says, come, leave behind those things and follow me. For some of you, that means it's time to get serious about a relationship with God that you've maybe had for years. For some of you, it may be, man, I've never even had that relationship. I'm ready to to seal that deal today, to finalize that deal. And so as we just close, will you bow your heads with me and let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for this amazing story that's based in the past but speaks to the reality of our life in such a powerful way today. And I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here today. Father, that we, as we evaluate our life and we see things that would be taking your rightful place in our life, that we would be able to to get rid of those things and say, God, we want to make you number one. Father, I just imagine that in a room like this and people listening, even online today, there's some of us that have just been wavering for too long and we need to hear Elijah's message. It's time to quit wavering. Father, I also pray for some of us who hear about this relationship with God and the grace of Jesus Christ and his love and his forgiveness. And we've never even really received that ourselves. So all across this room, there may be some that say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sins. I need to begin that relationship with you. I need to define this relationship by making you number one in my life today. Forgive me. Come into my heart. Lord, I pray that we as a church would not be lukewarm. Father, that we would reflect you well to this world around us. That people would see your people as we were created by you to be fully devoted to you. Fully committed to the worship of our one true and awesome God. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.